It's an absolute privilege to welcome Dr. Stuart Pearson to our conversation today. Stuart is Associate Professor and Deputy Director at the Sir Jules Thorne Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institution. He completed a PhD in Neuroscience on Visual Pigments and Circadian Biology at University College London in 2001. During his subsequent work in Imperial College, he contributed to the identification of the melanopsin PRGC system in humans, as well as the characterization of melanopsin signaling pathways. He was appointed as a lecturer at Imperial College in 2005, before moving to the University of Oxford in 2006. His work has continued to focus upon characterising the signalling pathways mediating the effects of light on physiology and behaviour, with the aim of understanding the mechanisms underlying sleep and circadian rhythm disruption. We're going to be talking in particular about circadian rhythms and how that affects people as they get older. But we're going to begin by asking you, Stuart, just a little bit about how you got into all of this. So it's a long story. Uh, my PhD was supposed to be on the you know, vision in the ultraviolet in different animal species, but it ended up work, working on uh, photoreceptors in the pineal organ to circadian rhythms. So my background has very much been on the light-sensitive pigments and how visual pigments were adapted to the light environment. So it was really a transition from that into how then photopigments are adapted to regulate circadian biology. So it's a bit of a sideways step, but at the same time, it's been a circadian focus really um, over the last 20 years. I was incredibly lucky because melanopsin was discovered during my PhD and most of the molecular circadian clock was discovered during my PhD as well. So literally every week you could go to the library when we physically used to go to the library and there was another paper coming out that completely changed how you understood the field. So it was a great time to do a PhD. How amazing. It's become such a common thing to talk about now that it's very hard to imagine a time before we knew a little bit about that. But actually, mm. I realise that most of us don't know very much at all. So mm. perhaps you could just begin by talking about the sleep-wake cycle in the normal healthy person. Sleep is not a simple output of our circadian clock, not like many other processes that occur throughout our body. Sleep is regulated by the circadian clock, but it's also regulated by a homeostatic process, which is basically a complicated way of saying, the longer you're awake, the more you need to sleep. So you wake up in the morning and as you go through the day, you build up the need for sleep. And that's typically why mid to late afternoon, you often start feeling tired if you've got a high sleep pressure, if you haven't slept well the night before. And it's typically before then your circadian clock has kicked in and started to help keep you awake. And effectively, then that helps keep you awake on an evening when your sleep pressure is high. And then when that circadian drive for waking drops away, that creates a window in which you can optimally sleep. So it also explains, for example, when you think, oh, I'll have an early night, you go to bed two hours early and lie there wide awake because you can't get to sleep because your circadian clock is thinking, well, it's time you should be awake. And so it's still keeping you awake, despite the fact that you'll have an early night. Effectively, the two should be working in harmony. What we have a tendency of doing as humans in the modern society is ignoring that and trying to sleep when we, we think it's convenient with our lifestyles. If we actually you know, have a regular cycle of, of sleep and wake and we have regular patterns, then actually the system works really well. And it means that we can sleep and we sleep around the same time each day. When we start trying to move our sleeping times, then effectively you're trying to sleep when you're not in that window of optimal you know, sleep, which means it's a lot more difficult. And the other thing to bear in mind is that however strong your circadian drive to keep you awake is, if you're really tired, you will still be able to sleep. 
so that homeostatic drive can overcome that so the, the two should be working in harmony what we have a tendency of doing is living lives that don't allow them to do that got it so that's the uh, ideal we've been awake long enough and the circadian drive is also falling away so it all comes together perfectly we've got our pajamas on and go to bed unless we disrupt that with exposure to light at the wrong time is that correct what are the main ways that we disrupt so typically it will be you know, insufficient sleep, which means that our sleep drive is higher. So, yeah, we feel tired even though our circadian clock is keeping us awake. The other thing to bear in mind is that the circadian clock is not just keeping us awake at certain times, it promotes sleep at other times as well. So as it falls away during the night, it facilitates sleep. So other ways, as, as you mentioned, uh, light on an evening particularly increases alertness and arousal, and that will actually also delay our clock. So then that peak for wakefulness occurs at a, at a later time. So many of the different environmental factors that disrupt our clocks potentially can affect the circadian clock and have direct effects on sleep. So the other thing to bear in mind is our circadian clock period changes throughout life. So our period is typically slightly longer than 24 hours. But when we're teenagers, it's longer still. And then it declines again as we get older. So it means if our clock's shorter than 24 hours, we will typically get up earlier, go to bed earlier. Whereas if our clock is you know, much longer, that normal circadian period, then we will go to bed later and get up later. So that explains also the variation you see in the population, that some people are you know, prefer to be up early on a morning and go to bed earlier, and others actually operate better getting up later and going to bed later. Got it. Which brings me neatly on to the next part of the conversation, mm -hmm. which is about the impact of ageing. <laughs> on that sleep-wake cycle because, as I understand it, sleep disruption is a major factor in cognitive decline in other kinds of neurodegenerative disorders. <laughs> is it a cause or an effect? It's very hard to say whether it's a cause or effect. Certainly, I would say that people shouldn't be worried. If, you know, if you sleep badly, it is not likely to be things like neurodegenerative disease, which I think has been suggested before. In fact, sleep disturbances are common in many other disorders <clears throat> and this is one of the reasons why a lot of the time medically they are there's a, a symptom rather than anything related to cause but certainly it seems that in many other conditions that improving sleep can improve both quality of life and help ameliorate some of the other symptoms so clearly sleeping badly on top of any cognitive decline that's going, is not going to make it better you will exacerbate the effects and make any ability to concentrate and you know pay attention even worse so if you can improve sleep it can help some of the symptoms of cognitive decline with aging got it so as i understand it the part of the brain that is processing mm -hmm. that circadian signal from the light is changing over time as we get older can you tell me more about that most of our work on this really comes from animal models we can't study easily the scn in humans but what typically happens is that the strength of that circadian rhythm declines with age. And we're not sure whether that's because of reduced coupling between the neurons and they're not providing us a coherent, robust output. But it seems that the strength of the rhythms get, get slightly weaker with age. And that means that this coordinated drive, which helps you know, interact with the homeostatic drive, the sleep will be affected. So effectively, our drive to keep us awake will not be as, you know, as strong. And if that 
central master circadian clock in the SCN is not providing a strong output, then rhythms throughout the whole body will be weaker. And so we will end up with a situation where rather than having a very strong time signal in the hypothalamus of our brain, which regulates rhythms throughout the rest of our body, we just have a slightly weaker signal. Uh, and that means that as that signal gets weaker, we, our rhythmicity and our, that robust rhythmicity that's normally you know, important for health, robustly orientated in time as we should be. So that signaling system is changing and, and getting less robust. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that we need more light? Because I also um, eyes are changing over time. There's a couple of factors happening. One of the things, of course, is as we get older, we may spend a lot less time outdoors. And we're also maybe engaging in less exercise. And we know that light exposure outdoors can be 10, 100, even a thousand times brighter than indoor lighting. So it's a much stronger time cue. So we sound like a grandparent telling people, get outside and get some sunlight. But effectively, sunlight is so much brighter. And exposure to a reliable, strong environmental time cue is also important in synchronizing our clock to the environment. So setting our clock is important. And robustly setting our clock actually can help strengthen circadian rhythm. So that getting a strong time cue from the light-dark cycle is something that can counter the effects of that weakening clock with age. But typically, of course, people, for example, in a nursing home or if you're housebound, may not be able to get out and spend as much time outside. So there's a negative feedback that really occurs. In addition, there are, there are changes with the, with the eye that occur with age. A lot has been made out of the fact that as we get older, our lens becomes more yellow, transmits less blue light. Now, the change in transmission of the eye effectively you know, will slightly reduce the amount of light that is available to the blue light sensitive ganglion cells in the retina. However, those effects are relatively small. One of the other factors that may be important, and again, a lot of studies have been done on this, but as we get older, our pupil size on average is smaller. It's age-related meiosis. So as we've got a smaller pupil, less light is getting into the eye. So simple measures by which you, know, you can increase light exposure may actually have quite robust effects on the aging clock. Got it. And what about spectrum? One thing that is often completely overlooked in, in the discussions about the changing of the light environment is melanopsin, the pigment in these circadian photoreceptor in the retina, is most sensitive to light around 480 nanometers, which is a blue cyan part of the spectrum. But actually, it has a broad absorption curve. So it can absorb light across quite a range of different colors. It's a bit like a classic bell shape, a normal distribution. So melanopsin can absorb light that's red. It just doesn't do it quite as well. Even if you cut out all the light, for example, the blue blocking glasses and blue blocking filters that are sold, if you cut out all light below 500 nanometers, you may reduce the light available to melanopsin by about threefold. Now, given that the circadian responses to a light occur over often 10 or 100 fold changes. On that scale, that threefold reduction is actually quite small. If you've got quite bright light, threefold reduction won't make any difference. If you've got quite dim light and it's not going to have an effect on your skin clock anyway, filtering won't have any make it. It's only if you're right in the correct part of the dose response curve would you actually have an effect. So just increasing blue light or just decreasing blue light will have an effect. But actually, the, the factor that it probably has a much bigger effect is the light intensity itself. And as I say, one of the big factors that is different between our artificial light environment and the natural light environment is our 
artificial light environment, a typical room may be 100 to 300 lux. And if you go outside, even on a dim winter's day, it could be a thousand lux or more. We have bright summer's day, you can have light intensities of up to 100,000 lux. So the, the difference between daylight and artificial light is enormous so in terms of intensity. The intensity is often overlooked where people have started to get more obsessed with the spectrum or the color of the light, but the intensity is more likely to have a big effect. Now, in a perfect world, what you can do is shift the spectrum and change the intensity in a way that will effectively maximize the effects. But I think just wearing, for example, blue blocking glasses you know, is not likely to protect you from effects of light on a blue light on an evening because if you've just got lots of light anyway it's going to actually delay your clock so um. thank you so it sounds as though if we can increase the light level and increase stimulation mm. then those two the circadian system mm. and the homeostatic system will work in a yeah. more harmonious fashion yeah and good routines so getting up and going to bed around the same time. And one thing related to that is, yes, bright light during the day, but also darkness on the night. But also ideally on an evening. So you want to be reducing light levels. But one of the things that is a bit more tricky about the optimizing light in our environment is there will always be effectively a conflict between our visual need and our circadian need. Our circadian system would love bright light during the day and complete darkness all night. But nobody really wants to sit in a living room in complete darkness on the evening before they go to bed. And similarly, with an elderly population, you don't want to have very dim light on a night, for example, if you're trying to get up to go to the bathroom and tripping over. Falling hazards are also an, an issue. So I think that's where we are at the moment, is trying to find that sweet spot, the balance between the two of what are our visual requirements for light on an evening, and can we get those low enough so it won't have an effect on our circadian clock. I think that's where it's a little bit more complicated than just simply saying, well, just blue filter things. Yeah, everything will be okay. It sounds as though we've done a lot of work in animal models. Where would you say mm -hmm. in just a sentence or two, what the future holds for this area of research, particularly when we're thinking about <coughs> in hospitals mm -hmm. or elderly residential care? So the lighting industry have become very interested in the non-visual effects of light because it's also important for health and well-being. But there's sometimes a rush to translate that before actually we know what the important features are that we need to translate. So we find it quite surprising as scientists who work in this area that people in the lighting industry have moved into this and it's been applied to building design within 25 years of, of the new receptor being identified. And the fact that the man on the street now knows about the effects of blue light, things like sleep and circadian rhythm. So that uptake and the public understanding of this has moved very quickly. I think sometimes the translation of this has run ahead of the science. There's a, a tendency of lighting products being pushed into market, making claims that are not necessarily supported by evidence, or effectively, we don't know the, the, the basic science on which they're trying to design the product. So I think better work between the lighting industry and academia in terms of the basic research would be important in terms of making sure that the products that are being developed are based upon proper science. And we see a lot of things, we just think oh, that'll never work. That's just kind of nonsense. <laughs> um, and vice versa, actually better understanding of the lighting industry requirements and the building industry requirements by scientists. Because 
it's all right for us to, to do experiments under laboratory conditions or to look at even animal models. But the, the reason we do this is to translate it to you. And we should be providing better guidance as to what is being done. So I think a better integration of uh, work between the end application and the basic science is probably a good thing. And in addition, what are the key factors that we still don't understand? You know, one thing that I think will change the field quite a bit is better personalized light measurements. Because our environment is filled with artificial sources of light, what we don't know is actually what people are really exposed to on their day to day. And the only way of really doing that is to measure someone's light exposure. And we've done that before in a you know, small example and it's amazing it's it could be potentially very complicated it seems like actually if you measure the exposure to people to a whole range of light sources that they see day to day it could be seemingly almost infinitely complex however there are a lot of real regularities if you think about your day to day the light sources you're going to be exposed to it will be in your home on a morning maybe outdoors and public transport or whatever on the journey to work and then your work environment and then in reverse back home again so actually there's a lot of regularities in our light exposure day to day i think one of the biggest sources of variability is that early evening we particularly noticed at this time of year as it starts to get darker where we get home and we start turning lights on because our home can be filled with such a variety of artificial light sources although the light levels are lower we're exposed to a real mixture of different light levels we can be exposed to light as the sun's going down we start turning on lights we've got screens tvs we've got fluorescent lighting and led lighting all over the place so it's a real mixture of different light sources and that can add a lot of noise to what the signal that our circadian system is trying to detect fascinating as you said it's a very young field but it's clearly getting lots and lots of interest and excitement as we move into the LED age and trying to work out which ones we should be buying and, and developing and using. And a really interesting conclusion that, that I really wasn't expecting, which is to do with that translation, building big, better bridges between the lighting sector and the scientists and the built environment. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Stuart Pearson, his associate, Stuart Pearson is Associate Professor and Deputy Director of the Social. Stuart Pearson is. A... It's a pleasure to welcome Associate Professor Stuart Pearson to our conversation. Stuart is Associate Professor and Deputy Director of the Surgical Thorn Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institution. He completed a PhD in neuroscience on visual pigments and circadian biology at University College London in 2001. During his subsequent work at Imperial College, he contributed to the identification of the melanopsin PRGC system in humans, as well as the characterization of melanopsin sin. It's a pleasure to welcome Assistant Professor Stuart Pearson to our conversation today. Stuart Pearson is Associate Professor and Deputy Director of the Sulgeul Thorn. Stuart Pearson is Associate Professor and Director. Stuart Pearson is Associate Professor and Deputy Director of the Sergio 